Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The gate to the kingdom is opening once more. This month sees the return of Lars von Trier's cult 90s series The Kingdom. The acclaimed filmmaker behind Antichrist, Melancholia and Nymphomaniac is picking up where he left off with The Kingdom Exodus, a brand new limited series available exclusively on Mubi from November 27th. A continuation, reboot and revival of the original series, The Kingdom Exodus is a disturbing, darkly funny blend of supernatural ghost story and workplace sitcom, with von Trier's signature anarchic streak once again at the fore. If you're new to The Kingdom, Movie has you covered. Newly restored versions of The Kingdom 1 and 2 are streaming on the platform from November 13th and 20th. Episode 1 of The Kingdom Exodus is released a week later on November 27th, with new episodes dropping weekly on Movie right up until December 25th. Consider it an early gift from your friend and ours, Lars von Trier. Head to Movie.com to start streaming. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Adam Woodward. And I'm Cara Soldridge. On the show this week, a pair of young cannibals go on an unforgettable road trip in Bones and All. Brian Johnson and Benoit Blanc return with Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. And I spoke to its stars, Catherine Hahn and Kate Hudson, about their roles in the delightful new murder mystery. And on Film Club, it's Lars von Trier's cult classic, The Kingdom. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Karis, very excited to have you on the podcast for the first time. Uh, for listeners who are unaware, could you explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. I've been a very loyal listener and I love the podcast. So, yes, in my kind of day to day, I am an executive working in independent film sales and distribution. And I also host uh, my own podcast called The Uncertainties, for which is kind of interviewing very interesting people from all walks of life and kind of talking to them about the things that make them the most uncertain or have made them the most uncertain in their 20s and how they've been able to navigate that. I mean, I've just there's so much admiration for you guys. When I was in my 20s, I was an absolute mess. Any kind of <laughs> podcast I would have contributed would have just been like, I don't know, I could barely get up in the morning. So <laughs> you doing it, that suggests to me that you've actually got it more together than most. Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, that's kind of the aim of the podcast that is, I hope that it's quite relatable and that people do feel like they're kind of stumbling through that decade. So yeah, I hope I'm not alone in that feeling. <laughs> when it comes to uh, films are there anything that you kind of in your 20s have like returned to and you feel like good guides for you know kind of getting everything together or or just kind of things that were big milestones for you to watch yeah it's a great question I think 
off the top of my head, something like 500 Days of Summer is something that I've... It's a film that I love that I've kind of come back to. I think it's a great kind of exploration of relationships at that time. And it's one that I remember watching years ago and uh, thinking, oh, I hate that character. I hate this character. And I always kind of, as I grow and mature, have, have become more empathetic to different perspectives. So I think from in terms of kind of, I guess that first big relationship, um, which I think quite a few people do have in their 20s, that can be quite a relatable film that's quite good to return to. Adam, what about you? Anything that kind of formed your soul in your 20s that you that you watched? I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, I was already kind of working at Little White Lies in sort of my early 20s. So I'm trying to think what the kind of big films that I, I sort of first watched in a, in a kind of professional capacity, I suppose. I almost see it as like there was a bit of a, a shift from just kind of watching films as as a kind of, you know, general Joe Public uh, movie watcher and then, and then yeah, now kind of doing it in a more professional capacity. So I don't know. I remember I went to very early press screening of Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island and that being like quite a, a big thing because he was someone obviously whose films I really loved and had very much been like a guide for me, I think, through my sort of early ventures into cinephilia. And I remember really not liking it and being like, oh, this is this is interesting. I think that's maybe not a great example to give for like a guide film. But I, I remember that experience a lot. And then remember, obviously, like revisiting a lot of his films around that time and, and sort of, yeah, trying to sort of like get more of a kind of grounding in, in, in the professional world of film criticism, which was, you know, I had ma- massive like imposter syndrome at the time and, and very much felt like I was playing catch up with a lot of people. So I think I just kind of watched as much as I could around that time. There's something like weirdly reassuring to imposter syndrome, though, when you think of Martin Scorsese being able to make a film that's not that great. Oh, yeah. And I stand by that. I mean, I, I've since rewatched Shutter Island and still think it's very much like low, low tier Scorsese. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, Martin Scorsese is someone that the Internet seems to keep coming for at the moment. And I really wish that they would leave him alone because you know he's wonderful and particularly what he does for world cinema. And I think that's what really happened to me in my 20s. I started watching Usman Sambet and I started getting into Korean cinema and stuff and, you know, kind of a feeling that like this was maybe like a path to understanding something wider about the world. And that, that's still, I suppose, where my, my interests lie. I would, I would ju- just add quickly that Karis's podcast is really great and everyone should listen to it. Thank you. That's very very kind. (laughs) It's true. But we should move on to some of the films that we're covering this week. It's a pretty solid selection. I mean, looking forward, there's not going to be many episodes like this in the coming months, but we are on a bit of a winning streak at the moment. So we'll start first with Luca Guadagino's Bones and All. Bones and All is a story of first love between Marin, a young cannibal learning how to survive on the margins of society. She meets fellow eater Lee, an intense and disenfranchised grifter, and they join together for a thousand-mile odyssey which takes them through the back roads, hidden passages and trap doors of Ronald Reagan's America. So, Karis, like, coming into this, um, were you what they refer to as a shalomaniac or were you <laughs> what we have coined on this podcast as a shalonaysayer? What was your feelings about coming to a Timothy Chalamet film? You know, I'm probably in the camp of shalomaniac. Am I saying that correctly? Maybe, maybe not too obsessive, but I'm definitely a big fan of Timothy Chalamet. Every time I want to say his surname, I say Shalamala Bing Bong because I remember that interview with um, Florence Pugh, and I'm like, nope, 
that's not his name. But I truly loved this movie. I was very trepidatious going into it just because if someone says kind of cannibalism and horror in the same sentence, I'm always a little bit like, ooh. But I I was so pleasantly surprised and, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's a lot sadder than it is scary, I would oh, say. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know that I'd categorise this as a horror film, would you? No, that's that's the thing. I think um, it's interesting when you read reviews online that do categorise it as a horror, and I think it says something about the filmmaking, that it transcends that genre. I, I, I mean, a friend of mine who I was watching it with kind of turned to me at the end and said, that felt very Shakespearean, kind of like Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, you know what, it does. I think there's it, there's so much more to it and, and lots of layered meanings. And, you know, I I think I mostly interpreted it as more of a kind of a teenage love story and, and a, an exploration of kind of abandonment and grief and family secrets. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really think of it as a, as a horror at all. Yeah, I, I remember coming out of this screening um, a couple of months ago and, you know, I had to put on my sunglasses in the screening because I was very embarrassed by, by how much I was weeping and I had to sort of almost be like, you know, almost like somebody in a James Brown concert. I had to be huddled away <laughs> by some friends because I was like near collapse. I was so moved by it. All. Adam, did you have like a similar feeling? Were you sort of caught up in the in the romance and the devastation of it all? Yeah, I, th- I think it definitely works best as a romance, as a teenage romance. And I think the scenes where Timothy and Taylor Russell are on screen together are, pr- are probably the strongest. And that, and that is like a good good chunk of the runtime as well. I must say, I really love the opening. It sort of has this quite cold open with Taylor Russell and her father and there's this sort of sense that they live this quite transient existence and there's and there's quite a kind of gruesome scene early on at a sleepover which kind of sets the tone for, for what's to follow and this almost like discovery, it's this kind of d- double-edged thing, right, of her coming of age and also her kind of like... I guess it's like sexual awakening as well is wrapped up in there but her awakening to her bloodlust. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's like a pretty, a pretty solid film I must say, Luca is is a director who, who who kind of baffles me a little bit. I think going back to his early career and, and certainly earlier sort of English language career, going from stuff like I Am Love and Call Me By Your Name to like Suspiria and then this, he's gone down this very very interesting route, making these kind of now this sort of like YA romance, and I, I, I sort of wish he'd get back to making more like adult films a little bit not to sort of uh, damn this one with faint praise too much but for me it was like it, it works on a certain level but I, I don't think there's there's all that much going on kind of beneath the surface I know the the background context of like Reagan's America is there but for me it's the same thing with like Suspiria didn't really have much to say about the Holocaust or Holocaust survival and that seemed to be a sort of line that people went with quite a lot and I think the same with this I'm not sure this really has much to say about Reaganism or or the kind of wider socio-political context Um, but as a sort of road movie as a romance it's quite fun Um, it's got some good performances I really like Taylor Russell I hadn't really seen her in much before and I think she's really strong and Timothy doing good work as, as ever and you know there's some fun kind of gruesome stuff although I, I think you're right in saying Karis it's not really a horror film there is still some quite nice let's say kind of squelchy gory sound effects and you know stuff that does make you want to look away from the screen a little bit so um yeah I think it's got a little bit of, of everything in it oh, I feel much more warmly about it than you do but Karis uh, like beyond the kind of level of like beautiful cannibals falling in love. There's been kind of talk of like, you know, what does this say about Reagan's America? Is this a queer love story? Is this kind of all about outsider art? Like, did you kind of see a sort of metatextual layer to it? 
Absolutely. I think for me, once I'd had a few days to kind of ruminate, I really appreciated the film even more than I did whilst watching it. I see where you're coming from, Adam, and that like it is interesting, you know, I think it is very deliberate to set it in that kind of post-Reagan era and that kind of idea of that loss of innocence that is very kind of prevalent in the movie. But I do kind of see that it, it does take a little bit of work from the audience to be putting those bits together. It's not necessarily kind of screaming from the screen. But yeah, I, I absolutely think that there is a lot of layered meaning in this. I know I was very lucky to to see Luca afterwards discussing the movie and he was kind of talking about how he was he surprised himself in it being a very deeply personal film in the end because he lost his father the previous year. And, and I think uh, something that is at the core of this film, as I mentioned earlier, is this the topic of grief. And I think that's incredibly important. And that idea of abandonment and that feeling of yeah these disenfranchised youths that are on the fringes of society and I know that's something that he says is a is a, a theme that he seems to kind of keep returning to in not just this movie but but previous films as well so I definitely got quite a lot out of it and I think it's it's one that that you can think about for a long time afterwards but yeah I, I agree that maybe it's it, it maybe is asking quite a lot of the audience to, to maybe put those bits together instead of it being very kind of apparent yeah, the parent, the sort of absent parent aspect of the story is interesting. And I, I, I think maybe this is just because I really love Andre Holland as an actor, but I kind of wanted a little bit more of, of him. And it, and you understand why he kind of has to leave or depart the film as early as he does, although he, he kind of reappears as in, in kind of like voiceover occasionally. But the film then becomes much more focused on Taylor Russell's character's relationship with her mother and her sort of tracking tracking down her mother. And for me, that was like maybe the weakest element of the of the film as much as it kind of is this like cathartic moment for her and quite a kind of horrific moment when it happens. Maybe, maybe that's the closest the film does stray into kind of traditional horror actually. But uh, yeah, I, did, I, I thought that kind of was, was not quite handled as well. Whereas I, I felt much more the connection there obviously between Taylor West and Andre Holland and that, that relationship I thought was, was much more interesting. Like you've raised a child who has this condition, let's say, how you know how do you respond to that what does that actually look like you, you don't obviously get much of that in the film for obvious reasons but it's that was I think the bit I was more interested in than the sort of like her trying to track down her mother and I suppose answer questions about her own humanity or lack of it when it came to the kind of technical side of things I mean he's clearly referencing Terence Malick with a lot of these shots do you think he was sort of able to reach those heights or do you think that is a sort of too high a bar for Luca to set himself I mean it's a it's a very pretty looking film there, there is a sort of yeah but a bit of a sort of Badlands vibe I suppose to this in, in certain scenery and imagery but you know it's certainly not the first contemporary film to have kind of been tipping its hat to Malick in that way and and you know I think certainly if someone who is a bit more familiar with the American Midwest and that whole expanse of land would, would probably appreciate it on that level. But no, I don't, I'm not sure it, it could quite hold a candle up to Malik. But it's doing its own thing, I, I think, as well. Like, I, don't, I certainly don't think, as much as I didn't fully connect with it, I'm not sure, I don't think this is like a derivative film. And actually, it must be said, it's really hard to do something new with the genre or the, or the kind of um, the subject of cannibalism or vampires or this you know we're in this territory of like elevated horror to use air quotes now 
But obviously these stories have always had a kind of allegorical edge to them since the very beginning, right? So I think nowadays it's quite hard to do something really kind of fully new with this. And and actually to, to his credit, and I know it's based on a, on a source novel, but the way it's been adapted I think is... Is is interesting and it's, is certainly trying to do its own thing. So I think, yeah, definitely kind of commend it for that. And Karis, I wanted to ask you about what you thought of Mark Rylance because he was sort of originally considered a sort of do no wrong actor, and then he's made some kind of wild choices <laughs> in the past <laughs> couple of years. But like, do you did you see his sort of you know he's the antagonist Sully, I suppose, to sum up his part without giving out any spoilers. I mean, did you find him compelling as the antagonist? I did. Yeah, I really did. You know, there's something so deeply unsettling about the way that he played that character. And you're so kind of distrusting of him and his intentions really up until the very end. And he doesn't actually, now I think about it, get that much screen time. But I think he does a lot with that role in the time that he does get. I Yeah, I, I found Sully to be a very fascinating, but yeah, as I say, unsettling character. And, yeah, I think there are some very interesting choices that he made on screen. The bit that I think was, like, very visceral and, like, deeply unsettling is that bit with Marin and um, Sully when he's making her food and the the kind of use of, like, textures and sounds that Luca uses with the... He kind of, like, crushes a carcass... Is it like a carcass, basically, on the table? And it just... It stirs something so unsettling within you. But I think it's in those choices and, and the way that he plays that character is, I thought, was really interesting. I kind of wanted to dive a bit more into that, question the kind of the third-person disassociation Association of and and that kind of psyche I thought was really fascinating. And I, th- I thought it was something that was brought out so beautifully in the costumes because Sully does kind of have a strangely like militaristic look about him. So there's an air of a sort of traumatized Vietnam vet without us ever like specifically kind of saying that this is what this is a metaphor for. But yeah, I mean the costumes for me is just a such a highlight. I mean Timothy Chalamet with that pearl twin set, I I, I couldn't get enough of it. Adam, you have mocked me in the past for having bad taste in music and film scores, particularly that I like the Thor ones. <laughs> I'm wondering, I was very moved by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score of this, particularly the final song. I kind of came out desperately trying to Google what this song was without realising it had been made for the film. Am I correct in thinking that this was a great score? Or have I gotten it wrong again? No, I mean, I apologise unreservedly for mocking you in the past but i think i think this is this is pretty good yeah i mean it it doesn't have that kind of like visions of gideon moment at the end but it's but it's a strong i think a strong score throughout and i don't know i'm just plucking a kind of composing double act out of the air really but if you compare it to kind of the work that nick cave and warren ellis do which i think more recently has become a lot more kind of schematic and and much more kind of formulaic and 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 they have a very distinct sound i think what trent Reznor and atticus ross do consistently is like almost like reinvent their the way they approach sound design and scores i I think they i think karis alluded to earlier as well but the texture of the film like the audio texture of the film and the score works so well in sync together and i think they they're just yeah really at the top of their game here glad to know that i haven't embarrassed myself Again, uh, but we should get some scores on this before we move on to the next movie. Uh, Karis, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I'm going to go two, four, five for this. Ah, oh, interesting. So were the two you weren't looking forward to it that much? Had you <laughs> <to> Suspiria? 
<laughs> didn't love Suspiria and I think also uh, as I mentioned I think I was a bit trepidatious about the kind of horror cannibalistic <laughs> elements of it but also I think people seem to be feel very passionately about Call Me By Your Name and I, I enjoyed the movie but I don't think I loved it as much as a number of people did so I was a bit cautious approaching this film but I was as I said yeah very pleasantly surprised especially kind of in retrospect Adam what about you well I would say I was all up for some cannibal action so maybe a four I mean I didn't really like Suspiria but maybe a four in anticipation and then probably three and three but like a very high three for enjoyment and in retrospect it's probably a film I would I would revisit I'm sure there's more in there that is there to discover but yeah didn't didn't like fully connect with me I'm afraid well, I have done my end of years list and this features very highly on uh, on them. So, yeah, maybe a three in anticipation. You know, it, not the biggest fan of Luca, but, you know, it sounded promising. YA isn't really my thing. So the, the first images looked very cool. And yeah, probably four in enjoyment and five in retrospect. I, I absolutely loved it. I just I can't remember the last time that I was so kind of profoundly moved and, and bought into a young love story so well. I think as, as two young actors, Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet have something quite rare where you really don't see the wheels turning in their acting. So when it comes to kind of two people fall in love, it, it's very easy to buy into. Less Suspiria, more of this, please. Next up, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Glass Onion is best entered into with only minimal plot in mind. Suffice to say, the upcoming plot summary, the interview and the review will be spoiler free. What we can tell you is that tech billionaire Miles Bronze invites his closest friend for a murder mystery party mid-pandemic. The assembled crew involved Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel, his obedient head scientist, Catherine Hahn, an eco-warrior politician running for Senate, whose campaign is funded by Bron. Dave Batista plays shock jock Duke, a men's right activist, hoping to broadcast on a more significant platform and to finally impress his influencer girlfriend Whiskey, as well as Kate Hudson, a problematic fashionista named Birdie. 
the murder mystery party getaway on Glass Onion, his private Greek island, is made all the more enigmatic by the surprising accepted invitation of Janelle Monet as his screwed-over ex-business partner and Daniel Craig's renowned detective Benoit Blanc. When somebody dies on the island, Blanc must discover who the killer is. So, Adam, you've been hard at work on the Glass Onion and Knives Out mystery issue. Um, what was it about this film that you felt uh, kind of warranted a whole issue devoted to it? Yeah, well, I must say, not me personally too hard at work. My colleagues David and Hannah have, have definitely done the kind of bulk of the uh, of the heavy lifting on this issue. But yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the current cover of Little White Lies, issue 96, I believe, out now. And I don't know, I think we were all like fans of Knives Out, fans of Ryan Johnson generally, and got the opportunity to see this one nice and early and just really loved it. I mean, if listeners are already acquainted with Knives Out and that whole world, and certainly Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig's super sleuth, this I would say is, it's, it's obviously like a new story. It's got Benoit Blanc in it as the kind of protagonist again, but it's it's real fun. It's a bit of a step up, I think, in terms of what Ryan Johnson is doing with the genre. And I think it's just visually interesting. There's so much for us to explore in this issue as we do around, you know, murder mysteries and, and some of the kind of films which Ryan Johnson is referencing. There's stuff like The Last of Sheila which is a film that many people may not have seen, but it's Stephen Sondheim and Andy Perkins' sole uh, screenwriting credit from, from the kind of 70s. And it's a, it's a murder mystery, but set on a yacht. And it's, it's very much a kind of sun-soaked whodunit. So whereas, you know, the previous film Knives Out had this more kind of cosy Agatha Christie vibe, this is a bit more exotic. But, it's, but I, th- I think it's much more contemporary feeling as well. Knives Out had this slight political edge you've got characters in there who who very much kind of of the kind of 2019 you had the kind of alt-right troll kid in it and but this one i think is a lot more kind of scabrous and ryan johnson is very much more pointedly satirizing certain figures i mean miles braun the character who constructs this quite literal glass onion on a remote island in Greece and invites everyone to come and play this game on the island is, is yeah, he's a kind of quite thinly veiled proxy for someone like Elon Musk. And it's quite, it's quite fascinating now talking about the film and thinking about it again in the context of what's happening with, with like Twitter and everything. And, and there's this whole kind of running joke in the film of like, no one can quite work out whether Mars Bron is a genius or an idiot, but so many people are kind of reliant on him and his and his kind of power basically and so the the film explores this really this really quite fun interesting dynamic between all the main characters and then you enter daniel craig into the fray it sort of starts off with no one really understanding why he's there and they all just think oh this is fun miles has brought along this world-renowned detective to to kind of help play the game and it soon becomes apparent that he's uh he's not actually been invited by miles himself so yeah that's i guess as much as we should say about the plot i mean i don't know how how much detail we we can go into really but it's definitely one to just experience firsthand and and maybe not know too much going in yeah i mean i i love a murder mystery i i think we've not been in a in a good period with murder mysteries and a lot of the ones particularly the kenneth branner ones they really fail because it's just sort of all set up all red herrings and then one big reveal whilst what ryan johnson's does so which is so much more interesting is you keep getting new twists and turns and different bits of information throughout that actually build to a conclusion rather than a sort of scooby-doo ripping off of the mask and it's like oh this is the bad guy karis for you is this the more the sort of film that you like kind of that murder mystery comedy satire sort of thing yeah absolutely i do enjoy this kind of sub-genre of the like the whodunit 
And interestingly, I kind of unconsciously watched See How They Run last week, so it's just come on to Disney+. And I didn't really think about the fact that I'd be watching this and then Glass Onion within a week of each other. I'm kind of glad that I did for that kind of point of comparison. I think, you know, with something like See How They Run, it, it feels a bit stuck within its... Because it's kind of based around the Agatha Christie, it feels a bit stuck within its own narrative convention. Whereas this, as you've kind of alluded to, I feel like Ryan Johnson's ripped up the rule book and written his own and, and that's what really works about it and I think it, it gives you those genuinely unexpected twists and turns and surprises and you can see that he gets so much delight out of that directorial kind of the magician reveal and I think it just makes it such a delight to watch. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this. I think I was smiling like a Cheshire cat the whole way through. I was just like, this is so much fun and it is and it's just you're right, it's so much bigger and brighter and with everything, the characters, the plot the setting he's really kind of taken this upper level and it's yeah it's just a pure delight really um, one of the things that really struck me is they kind of keep referencing Clue where it's kind of like you have everybody who's got a, their own distinct colour but like the costuming of this is so much they do so kind of you know it's very excessive a lot of the time I loved what Leslie Odom was wearing obviously Kate Hudson is her kind of fashionista was you know decked out in some of the most beautiful stuff I've seen in a long time but like do you think that that costuming really like added to the plot rather than distracted well I, I actually spoke to ryan johnson for the magazine for this and we kind of touched a little bit on the costuming specifically daniel craig and his whole get up which actually he had kind of worked with the costume designer directly to kind of come up with something that was somewhere between carrie grant and jack tatty's kind of monsieur Hulot doppelganger and and i think that the combination just works so well and there's also that thing where you go in obviously i don't think it's possible to watch a daniel craig film now without that thought of him being 007 in the back of your head so the second he appears on screen even though he's wearing this kind of it's maybe not the, the sort of thing james bond would wear it's it's kind of very much benoit blanc on on holiday on a, on a, on a kind of greek island but it's just such a brilliant costume and it, and it fits the character and and there's just some really nice touches like there's a swimming pool at the resort and everyone kind of goes there straight away and just sort of relaxes and they have their welcome drinks and benoit blanc gets in the pool but he keeps his shirt on and I just love that little detail. And I, and I actually asked, I think we cut this out of the interview. Um, Ryan Johnson sort of said something like, well, you, you're never going to, Ben Wildblatt's never going to kind of show his nipples. You know, he's there. He's there for like business, but equally he's there for pleasure. So I, th- I think there's some really clever kind of costume work going on here. And as you say, the rest of the crew as well, e- equally so. I think Kate Hudson's, as, as the kind of fashionista, her outfits are very fun. Dave Bautista, th- does he have like a shirt on mo- most of this film? I think maybe not. That's kind of his He's mostly MO, just but... got a Speedo and a gun. <laughs> yeah, very apropos. You know, you can tell they've they've really thought about every every kind of little aspect and detail of this. And I think just, just to kind of add to what Karis was saying before, it is one of those films where you're not necessarily watching it thinking, too much about the whodunit you're thinking just like oh this is a, a really fun ride and I'm, I'm along for it no matter what direction it goes in and yeah you're just you're just kind of it's, it's a real it's a real thrill I think to watch a film where you, you just know you're in a safe pair of hands Karis this is a film about such like excessive wealth what did you think of the design of the private island itself yeah I mean yeah, you're completely right. I think the the social satire that is taking a hit at that absurd 
well. I love the bit just before they they hop on the yacht when they're kind of COVID concerned and they just kind of zap it, basically zap it away. I think it's so funny. But yeah, I I love the glass onion being this very kind of big symbol that's kind of constantly there. And it's really where a lot of the the big drama takes place. And, you know, Helms is the kind of centre of the island. And just the kind of vastness of it really, I think, is and, and how kind of separate everyone is in in terms of kind of having what they believe is their own privacy but actually they're kind of constantly being watched by each other I think is is again very funny you know it's it's totally excessive and ridiculous and that's kind of the point of it really <laughs> yeah I, I I love it being set on on this island it feels very it gave me very succession vibes the moment of them kind of arriving on this massive yacht and that the kind of the electronic tech donkey is it that like takes all of their luggage it's just those small little moments that are that are very funny that could just you know they're almost throw away but they're great yeah it is always i think a challenge to make kind of something that is hyper luxurious also really ugly very a lot ugly. of the time like I mean they're able to kind of communicate that Miles Braun has access to everything in the world but also has horrendous taste when it comes <laughs> yeah. to many of the rooms that they're in now we're moving from the kind of cinematic release you know uh, this is now a Netflix property they're going to make several more of these like Adam do you think that's a good thing that this has moved onto streaming and like that also we're getting a franchise rather than just you know one or two films yeah I mean it's a bit of a shame I think the film is being released in cinemas this week but only for like a week or so so do rush out and see it if you can at your local but Knives Out was obviously very successful I think relatively modest budget made a lot of money this one is it is a kind of step up in terms of the production budget and Netflix have pretty deep coffers and, and seem to be able to fund this sort of stuff and I think you know it's it's I think it's no bad thing that Netflix are giving Ryan Johnson a bit more budget and a bit more kind of freedom to continue this story and, and it's you know it's allowing him to go off and make other stuff he's doing this TV series with Natasha Leon with a rival streaming platform which looks quite fun um, and then Daniel Craig has already signed on to come back for a third Knives Out film Ryan Johnson says he's in very very early stages of kind of planning that so probably be a couple of years before we see that but you can imagine that'll be in a whole completely different locale and different story and characters so it's just really fun I think just seeing a director really at the top of his game and, and if you followed Ryan Johnson's career going from like Brick and Looper and even Brothers Bloom, I think there's like an element of, of, of that film in here and certainly was in Knives Out. And it, it just feels like these films kind of feel like the, the apiose of, of everything he's done so far in his career. It's like really built up to this. Um, and not to say that he's kind of peaked, but I think this is like he's, he's, he's kind of firing on all, on, on all cylinders here, I'd say. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Karis, for you, were you left excited for where another Knives Out film could go? Yeah, absolutely. I think I know that he's already kind of spoken about the fact that he's maybe not concerned with having to step up another level. Because I think, as, as Adam has said, this does feel very much like not the pinnacle, but, you know, it, it, he's kind of marrying all of all of his previous films expertise together to create something that is so extravagant and fun and great. But I definitely would like to see more of this and see where this mystery can take Benoit next. And I, I think Daniel Craig, it, it is really nice to see. We have become so used to seeing him 
him as Bond and taking himself so seriously on screen. And and um, I think it's really nice to see him in this role that he inhabits so well and that perfect like southern lilt that and the cadence of that that just lends itself to the comedy. And I think he does it so well and it's just very fun. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely excited to see what's next and how he can... It's not just Daniel Craig who's giving a fantastic performance in this film. There's an incredible ensemble and I had the absolutely delightful experience of talking about Glass Onion with Catherine Hahn and Kate Hudson. Hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. It's so lovely to meet you. It's such a pleasure meeting you. It's an Hi. absolute delight. Um, I love this movie. <laughs> so much of your characters are expressed through what they're wearing. Yes. Like, you know, you know, so incredibly glamorous and heightened, and oh. they're like much more utilitarian. But it's very like, kind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, on set, did, were you ever kind of jealous and wish that you were in like the other person's? Were you? Let me let me bring this to Kate. <laughs> Were you ever jealous of my beige sheath oh. and tailor long dress only? Which I love. Your orange tanning visor, darling. <laughs> that was the only thing I was so What about my sorrow? Of course. Um, no, you know what? I was... Look, I definitely yes. wasn't jealous of your outfits. Sure, I'm, okay. I'm we're going to be gonna, honest. I don't want you okay. to not be honest with me. <laughs> I might have been jealous, funny enough... The comfort. Of Edward, because um, he had like those loose pants. Like he's actually wearing mm-hmm. what I, I would be. I would actually yeah. wear more of like a mix between whiskey and Edward. Yes, that yes. would have been my yes personal yeah gr- Greek yeah. island style. Yeah. So there were times when I was I'm in all of these clothes that are fabulous, yes. but like after a couple of days, I'm like I just want to be yes. in whiskey's bikini and, and like some pants. pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first one, we kind of had that white cable knit sweater that yes. went viral. Did you think that there was kind of maybe an item of clothing that might do something similar in this one? Oh, I think Blanc's bathing. Swimming. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, his swimsuit. Yeah, I mean, that who, swimsuit's pretty great. How can you... With the, with the little cravat. Right. It's pretty yeah. fabulous. It looks a little bit... I, I don't want to jinx anything by saying iconic, but there's something pretty iconic about it. To me. Yeah, it's it's a very underrated accessory, a tiny, tiny neck scarf. (laughs) It's unexplored. And you know what's interesting? Lately, I've been noticing them on on so many people. The little ones? The little wrapped neck scarf is like, I saw it on this photographer I worked with the other day. I was like, oh, it's a Benoit Blanc. Special. Yeah. Because you're right, it's not like a cravat. It's just like a tight little, yeah. I haven't really seen it that often. It's because it's got it has no function. I think yeah. that makes it so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> exciting. It's so pointless. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, you guys first worked together on uh, How to Lose a Guy in Ten I Days. Know, my first movie. But I was just thinking, like we've recently been talking a lot in like well in film journalism at least about how much we missed like really like loads of rom coms mm. and kind of how we wish Classic. that would come back. Is that something that you guys really want to see have a revival? I mean, I have a whole theory about this, which is that the great romantic comedies are always an uphill battle, like every movie, because there's something that happens with rom-coms. They want to put it in a box. They want to make it super bright. They don't ever want to take chances doing anything different. Oh, that's interesting. And so you have to approach them. It takes a very specific type of director and a writer and a producer and the actors to know how to it's it, it's really not an easy genre to get right mm-hmm. and when you do get it right they're going to be some of the most classic movies 
really of all time that people watch over and over and over and over again. So it's a very specific ability, like the like the murder mystery. When you can hit a rom com in the right way, it's great. And then, but if it's you know, if, I think that after a while, there's this sort of a dumbing down of them because it becomes the movie that you just want to make because you think people want to just. It's why I stopped making them mm-hmm. as as often. You know, I don't think I'll ever make them anymore unless I'm actually producing them mm-hmm. because I, I I don't. I think that they're they're really hard, and you have to you really have to fight for things with them internally. That's so interesting. I never thought of that before. But you're right. There is a certain like aesthetic that people that people just like, can't quite move off of. That you're right. It's like it just. It's like why? Same with studio comedy. Sometimes it's like there is like a certain like lighting, like like a like a flattening of something that it's like why not try something new. Visually and yeah, I don't know. And 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 yeah, and the and the and the casting of yes, it is just everything, you know. And and the other thing is, is it's really hard to get male movie stars yes. to make rom coms. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to just say that. Yeah, they, it's not really the things they you know. There's a, there's a couple that are very open to that, but. You know, it's really hard to get them to come on board. But with this, you've kind of got this um, ensemble, and I imagine the casting is really key. You guys all kind of come from such different backgrounds, and, you know, Leslie with the music and Dave with the wrestling and everything. Like, what do you think was the key to kind of it actually coming together to be a kind of believable group of people that would stay in each other's lives? I mean... Well, Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Ryan. He just knows. And also, just a side sidebar... Dave is an incredible actor mm-hmm. and has and had has done a bunch after his wrestling career. Like this I'm so excited for this next chapter for him because he's such a profound actor and person. Yeah. But yeah, Ryan I think really did cast people as well as these characters because mm-hmm. he knew how much time we would be spending together. So he really did think what humans are going to like he was ho- you know, like Kate has said before like he was hosting Kind of, yeah. Like I, he really was. Like, who do like, I want around the table? Who do, yeah. who do I want to hang out with, and are going to hang out with together for this amount of time? And so, like he knew what he was. He knew what he was doing. And so the you know everybody was just like, such delicious humans, and we really do like. I mean, there's so much love between this little group of ragtag humans, circus. <laughs> circus people that we just there's a, really a lot of love but it must be like an added pressure coming out of the pandemic a bit like your characters about like oh we're gonna be us together i gotta make sure so i have a naturally, though it really did happen naturally because we started in greece so it was like everyone had their own beautiful mm-hmm. places and we'd have like these kind of mellow meetings and it started with like smaller scenes and so like it wasn't like everybody all at once and... right but by the time we got to serbia yes it was like i was you know it was like can i do you still want to have dinner with me or is it like <laughs> right are you sick of me yet do you want to and then we just kept going, and it was like, like yeah, tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. By the end, it was like 60 weeks, and on Saturday nights, we just all would just hang out. Mm-hmm. It think, was the best. I think also we had, you know, there was enough of us to where we would go to, um, you know, we would have our own little moments, too, yes. you know, where yeah. and I would go do something, yeah. and J- Janelle and I would go do something, you and... No, like yeah. there was sort of a, it was very fluid. Yeah. The, I think the kind of thing that's almost so impressive about this is that these are 
not the greatest of people. They're morally dubious. But like, how do you then approach kind of, you don't want people to kind of hate spending time with them on screen, but you want them to kind of love to hate them. Like, how do you kind of strike that balance? It's all in the script. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how it is for you, Kate, but I I never want to put like any sort of stress of my own on top of like, is anybody going to like or dislike this person? I just have to play the play and trust Ryan that he will take care of the outcome. Like, you know, that's when you sign on to something. That's where you're putting your faith and your performance into Ryan's writing and to the, into his direction and to the editor. And, 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 if, choi- and, cho- and you know... Yeah, into the choices. But I think also, at the end of the day... It really is what makes a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like, to walk the line is yeah. a really, like, you have to be very skilled and intelligent and talented to be able to execute that. And those usually make the most fun movies, you know. Yeah, to love, to love, to love the enemy is, like, a really interesting <laughs> thing to make people like, you know. Yeah. yeah. Me, it does kind of seem to almost be like a bit of a weird parallel with Miles Braun in that you guys like put yourselves in the hand of kind of someone that oh, was going to direct it. And like, no Miles maybe, Braun. <laughs> you know, you're on an island kind of at the mercy of someone and you just, you know, maybe it's a Miles Braun, maybe it's a Rangel. Yeah, but here's the, here's the di- there's so many differences, but the main one is, is that these people ethically compromised need him and for for so many complicated reasons ryan is such a decent kind like such a generous person and he really was like and also just the 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 environment that we had freedom wise just to explore and it just felt especially with something that was so perfectly so well crafted as a script Mm -hmm. it there never was a feeling of like tightness on set and i don't know how he pulled it off really because there wasn't a ton of improvising Mm -hmm. but it just felt continuously loose and that was uh really such a gift yeah I mean, you're kind of straddling the kind of Hollywood tech world in a way because obviously Fabletics has just done incredible stuff with like e-commerce. I'm just wondering, have you come across that sort of Miles Braun hedonistic tech bro in your in your time? Oh, they're everywhere, <laughs> but they're in every walk of any business and yeah. all of our lives. I mean, you know, you're gonna have. Yeah. I think in the business on the business side of thing, it's one of those. It's grow, 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 yes. grow, build, 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 build. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what's happening, and. It's also interesting in the business world to see people kind of after COVID start to ask, what is the purpose? Yeah. Why are you doing this? And and some people are asking that question and some people yes. just aren't. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and which is destructive. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but in everything, you know, you have that and you have every walk of life. Mm-hmm. And I think Ryan really does kind of paint that picture out mm-hmm. well in this in this movie I mean there were a couple of kind of real life people that I thought of when I was kind of watching your characters that might be references but were there people kind of fictional or or in real life that you were drawing on in preparation for these not for me Mm-mm. yeah there's so many mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's like ah, 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 <laughs> that I didn't need to go any that what he had written it was already on what I all I really needed was on the as an actor, it's all about the script. Mm-hmm. 
But um, if you go outside of it, then that's not what you need. But so it's all in the script. But for sure, I mean, there's we're living in the world we're living in. But all you, all you need as an actor is right in front of you. I I yeah, unless I mean unless it, it's it is a specific thing, you know. I mean, he created all these really fun new characters yeah. out of this, you know, mm-hmm. crazy time we're living in. And it's supposed to be fun, right? So you want to make them it's fun, so full fun. of insanity. Oh, um, there, so, I mean, speaking of fun, there is a point that your character, Catherine, cannot help but imitate Daniel Craig's accent. <laughs> like, yes. Wait, is that tempting? Because, like, I almost watching it was like, I need to go to the bathroom and, like, try this voice. That was actually a little bit improvised. Oh, great. Then I was couldn't believe that Ryan kept it in, but I was I couldn't help it. Had to try it. Did you did you do the thing um, in Toronto where we had to do our best Benoit Blanc? Did you no, do that? I did not do that. They they made us me and Leslie do our best Benoit Blanc. That is amazing. And Leslie's was so. Oh, I bet good. it was. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean it, he he nailed it, but it was fun. I they had they asked someone on the red carpet last night asked me to say something in the Benoit Blanc accent and I could not hear anything but his beautiful English accent and so I just did it in an English accent because <laughs> I just kept hearing it I was like enjoy the film and I was like oh, oh wait a minute let me do it again yeah it, it's not one that you hear much outside of like Foghorn Leghorn and That's Benoit what he Blanc was saying. yes yes you spoke a lot about the writing but I mean, what was the experience of like first getting the script was it like a case of like you're tearing through trying to find out the twist trying to figure out what happens yeah I mean for me it was definitely like as as I kept going through it I was like how is he going to pull this off how is he going to pull this off like I couldn't believe how many things he was setting up and I just as I kept reading it I couldn't believe that he was that they were all paying off like that thrill was so I, I just felt especially after being such a fan of the original Knives Out, I was so excited Mm -hmm. that it was, I couldn't believe that that he pulled it off again. Yeah, it was very exciting as a read. And then to be able to see it at TIFF for the first time with an audience, like we all got to see it together, except Mm -hmm. I think for Daniel had seen it, but that was so satisfying to see it land on screen with the same kind of awe and wonder that I had reading it. it was really delightful. I think not only has he pulled it off again, I think it's it's better, honestly. I think this is just abs- it's a rare sequel that surpasses the original. Amazing. But um, for you, what were the elements of the original Knives Out that you were like most hoping to see again in this in this sequel? For for me, I think it would the the sense of uh, ensemble, mm-hmm. the buoyancy of the ensemble, the specificity of the ensemble. I know um, the kind of not that anyone's referencing Clue. But, like, the clue card of everybody, the, like, <laughs> of the characters was mm-hmm. so fun uh, of the original. And also the location as a character itself of the original yeah. was really fun. And that sharp editing and that music. I was very excited. And, I mean, it just works so well as kind of political cutting, political satire as well. Yes. Um, like, was that kind of important to you that that kind of message got across about, like, you know, talking about, I guess, societal disease and this is like a manifestation of it? Ryan said this one time in a Q&A or something we were doing where it's like, I think it's really important to leave that up to the audience mm-hmm. of how what they take from it, you know, that we kind of, he presented them with this 
really fun roller coaster ride, yes. as he says. And whatever anyone wants to take from it, they can. And 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 whatever dialogue that creates, instead of feeding it anything like that to anyone, that they should just experience it themselves and yes. think about what maybe comes out of it for them. Because it's going to be a, a little bit different for everyone, I think. Yeah. You know, I think everybody will get like a little, you know, it'll yeah. it'll bring up different things. Like go on, first and foremost, it's a ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to go into anything, especially beforehand, would be, you don't want to, everyone should just go in with an, like completely yeah. not knowing, like knowing as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully talk after. That's why I've not asked you about any specific. Questions. You've been amazing. <laughs> you were amazing. Well, it's so hard to do. It's so hard to do. I just want everybody to have like the pure joy that I have. I am so <laughs> glad. So oh, really? Oh, thank you both so oh, much. Thank you. So we should finally get some scores on this. Adam, do you want to go in first in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Sure. I think probably like a four. I mean, I, I love Knives Out. I think there's always that um, that slight concern of it not being as good as the, as the thing you love. So I, I'd say a four, definitely a five in enjoyment. I think it's just it's just a very it's just a very fun film and just so so well written. So many fun performances in there, and maybe a four in retrospect. I, th- I think I, I would say that Ryan probably would challenge himself to top this one with the next one. So so I think there's probably even more to come. Excitingly. Karis, what about you? I think I was a four um, in anticipation, definitely a five in enjoyment. And uh, I think I would also be a four in retrospect, actually. Oh, I, I love how synced up yeah. we are. I'm, <laughs> yes, I am also four, five, four. I, I'm, I'm so kind of thrilled for all the kind of cancellations or kind of things that don't get made by Netflix. I'm just going to be the most staunch defender and I will be on that platform until the apocalypse because... They give filmmakers like Ryan Johnson the opportunity to make just great movies like this that I cannot wait to watch again. Next up, Film Club. Set in the neurosurgical ward of a Copenhagen hospital, each episode of The Kingdom takes place over a single day and follows the hospital staff and patients as they encounter bizarre and sometimes supernatural phenomena. Yeah, so Adam, that that's a I mean, that is a summary of what it is. But I'd say that Lars von Trier's show is so much more than that. I mean, how would you describe it? Oh my goodness! I mean, it's it's kind of a combination of so many different things. It's this it's a, it's a kind of hospital set sitcom on one level. It's like a supernatural thriller on another level. It's ghost story. It's it's a very kind of hard thing to actually define and describe. I think unless unless you've kind of watched it previously. Um, and and so we should say that we're we we decided to go off piste a little bit with this with this choice of film club because eagle eared listeners, if that's the thing, will uh, notice this is not a film but a series. Um, I'm not sure we've ever done a series before in this segment but anyway but we're very excited about the kingdom exodus which is the sort of continuation slash revival of the series from the kind of mid 90s um, which is coming out uh later this month in fact i think it's coming out later this week on on mubi and, and running all the way through to christmas with episodes dropping weekly so nice little early christmas present from uncle lars we thought we'd revisit the the first the kind of original series from from the kind of mid 90s just as a kind of way to to tease the the new series and yeah it's 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 much it's it's really fun i mean i, I must say as much as i'm a fan of Lars von trier 
I hadn't actually seen this before. Um, I don't think it's been that widely available, certainly not in the UK. And so, yeah, it was a real treat. So the first two series uh, uh, seasons are on Mubi now. So if you have Mubi already, definitely, definitely kind of check those out. And it's yeah, it's a kind of an interesting comes at an interesting time in Lars's career if you if you look back because he, he it was kind of the pre dogma before he sort of reinvented himself and and while he was still making I guess I guess films with a bit more of a kind of satirical edge to them a bit more mischievous it's it's more like the Lars we we sort of know and love today but it's off the back of it having this amazing run in the kind of late eighties and early nineties which culminated in like Europa which I think is still one of his best films which which famously won won a lot of awards at Cannes but didn't win the big one and he was which he was quite quite peeved about and I think he. He, he was feeling a bit burnt out at the time from these more kind of artistic pursuits and, and shifted towards television and he'd set up this his production company, Zentropa at the time, and kind of saw the kingdom as a way to, to, to make a bit of money and, and, you know, do something which was maybe playing to a kind of wider wider gallery. And it's an interesting one because actually this, I think, has got a huge amount of artistic merit to it as well as being almost like satirising or lampooning, you know, hospital set sitcoms and a certain style of like TV comedy. I think he pitched it originally as like his his answer or his version to like Twin Peaks. There's maybe not too many comparisons. I think certainly in the in some of the performances and the characterization, there's there's a certain like uncanniness and a, and, a, and a, a bit of a kind of off kilter vibe to it. But I think what he's doing is quite different actually to David Lynch, um, and it's it's very much it's very much Lars's own thing. Yeah, I mean, I can see the parallels in that sort of like nightmare logic that um, kind of runs through them where, I mean, as much as this is quite surreal, there is a sort of dream level on which you are able to kind of engage with it, if that makes sense. And it does sort of cumulatively add up. Karis, is this the first time for you also coming to the kingdom? It is, yeah. Odd. And it, But were you a fan of Lars von Trier's before? Did you have like expectations as to what you were kind of getting in? Yes, kind of. I I haven't gone through his entire back catalogue. I think the last the last thing that I watched of his was maybe The House That Jack Built, which was obviously, I remember it in Cannes and it being so um, controversial. So yeah, it's, it's interesting now to kind of revisit this. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought. I did think it was a bit of a slow burn, but I was, I was definitely hooked. And I, I can definitely see how this particular project has I can see its influences I can see the Twin Peaks influence and I can also see how it has then influenced other projects I know that kind of docu-series kind of the the shaky cam footage and how that's influenced things even like The Office and yeah I did I found it very very interesting and fascinating to watch it's um I, the performances I thought were great uh and it had me it had me hooked yeah, I found myself on a bit of a deep dive uh, discovering that there was an American remake of this that was kind of headed up by Stephen King. And um, it's one of those things where the American remake entirely misses the point of the original. Because <laughs> I think what's so key to like Lars Frontier, this one in particular, but a lot of his work is that like is the humour. And the yeah. humour just did not translate to the American edition. So for those kind of who want to avoid subtitles, don't do it. Watch the original. It's quite specific as well, some of the humour, because you've got like one of the main antagonists, really. But there's a, a, a Swedish neurosurgeon who very kind of irascible, and he he he's sort of like famously, at, you know, comes to this Copenhagen hospital, but he 
basically doesn't like Danish people and lets them know it. And I think there's, you know, there's there's those tensions there. There's the kind of, I guess, more like local level, but like geopolitical tensions and and little, little kind of observed humour that I think works really well. And, and Lars is definitely playing more to that audience than like a, a more general audience. But it totally works on that level. And I think you watch it now and there's nothing, there's nothing really that you watch it and you think, oh, this feels really... Aside from like the way it's made, I don't, think, I don't think you would say, oh, this feels really dated or very like of its time. Kind of in the same way, actually, going back to Twin Peaks, I think that that has a similar thing where it, it could kind of be made today. I think it's got that kind of quality to it. Um, it's not that it's specifically referencing something which happened at a certain point in time. Although obviously what it's pastiching is like, like you say, these kind of like Stephen King, cheap serial kind of TV sitcoms and, and horror series that were being kind of churned out at the time. It's just very clever. It kind of is a bit of a slow burn. I, I, I see I see what you mean by that. It's, I mean, the first couple of episodes um, just kind of mostly play out as a, as a sort of situation like workplace comedy. Or, or more or more kind of drama really i suppose um and then it has these like little kind of flashes of you know the supernatural and one, one of the characters is a sort of amateur like spiritual medium and there's this kind of running gag really where she she's coming up with new, you know feigning illness just to kind of check herself back into the hospital to to sort of pursue this kind of ghostly figure of a child that she hears in in, in the in the elevator and the, and there's just some really nice playful dynamics as well between some of the characters and and you know i think the the way it observes hospital life is quite funny also must say big shout out to lars himself the very funny little sign-offs he he does at the end of each episode he kind of comes on you know mid credits and sort of says oh thanks for watching and almost like dangles this carrot of like maybe you didn't quite get this but that's okay and it's very funny like seeing him much much younger more kind of vigorous version of himself but coming on and doing that almost that thing of provoking the audience which he which he's obviously become so well known for now and Karis, you know Lars Vrancher has spoken recently about how he's really not in very good health at all and you know we wish the best for him but do you think it's surprising that given like you, you sort of the end hopefully not too not too close to but you know coming towards the end of your life and that this is the kind of project that he would return to that's a great question um yeah i i I think it is kind of fascinating i suppose there's a nice kind of cyclical element to it and it is something that has such a kind of cult following that it's it's almost kind of maybe more fan servicey than um anything else that he's decided to to kind of revisit this but it is interesting because i think he was you know the, the first two series were quite well received and i think he did want to make a third season like back in back in the 90s and two of the lead actors actually had died kind of in between you know after the second series so uh, so he you know put that on on pause and i mean there's this this one i think because of the obscurity really of of those original seasons this one isn't isn't really strictly like a third season it is very much like it's him revisiting the same kind of scenario and the same ideas but it's it's an updated thing it's a continuation of the same kind of um, yeah, certain elements of it, but it's him revisiting it now. It' very interesting to see with the Kingdom Exodus, like what his kind of preoccupations and and, and concerns are, really. I suppose, and, and whether there is more, I suppose, more of him in there in that in that in that sense of like returning to this setting, this hospital setting. You know, given everything that's going on with him now, it does does feel like there is a slightly more poignancy to it. It's definitely taken on, yeah, taken on more of a kind of personal tone, I'd say. Well, best of luck to Mr. Fontrier. He, he He's made a few slip-ups in his time, but, you know, certainly net positive 
from my perspective. If you've got thoughts on these films, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Noah Baumbach directs another marriage story, albeit an unpredictable one in White Noise. A documentary looks at David Lynch's fascination with The Wizard of Oz. And finally on Film Club, it's for my money, the greatest Christmas film ever made, A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Adam Woodward and Karis Aldridge. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.